I think the business environment is somewhat removed from the political conversation around renewable energy. And unfortunately, because we live in a fairly politically tribalistic time when everyone kind of digs in to the storylines that they tell themselves and we're looking to politicize everything, renewable energy and climate action still gets wrapped up in that. But when you look at how the business community is thinking about this transition and renewables specifically, they're all in. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Today, we welcome Stephen Lacey, co-founder and executive editor of Postscript Media and host of the Carbon Copy podcast. Hi, Stephen, and thank you so much for joining us today. What are some of the good and the bad you've seen come out of the energy industry as renewables begin to evolve? Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. The good and the bad, there's so much good and bad. I guess the good is something that everyone's paid attention to, which is that the cost of renewable energy continues to come down and has surpassed expectations. I think 10 years ago, most people expected cost curves to be quite steep, but they didn't expect to see the radically cheap wind and solar that we have witnessed over the last few years in particular. And the size of projects is getting enormous. And the amount of investment we're seeing from global utilities, from large project developers that are getting scooped up by big multinational energy companies, that's all very exciting. I will say the negative piece is we're now reaching and realizing the reality of the limits of renewables on the grid. We can put a lot of renewable energy on the grid and we can do it safely, we can do it reliably, but if we want to decarbonize the grid very fast, we need more battery storage. We're going to need to think about nuclear. We're going to think about you're going to need to think about carbon removal, better demand response. And so renewables are just one piece of the orchestra we need to see on the grid in order to drop carbon emissions faster. So we're seeing the limits of just what renewable energy can do. So the impact of our conversations and our discussions around this are certainly having moving the needle, so to speak. But what about the transition to renewables? Are we talking about that in the right context, in the right way? Are people embracing it the way you think we shouldn't be embracing it? Because you cover the energy industry quite extensively in your role with Postscript Media. So I'm just wondering what you're hearing out there in terms of the impact that the conversations are having and are they moving fast enough in your mind? I do think that they're moving very fast. And of course, the utility sector, where this is having the greatest impact, is a slower moving industry. And so the rate of adoption is not what we would want to see if we want to address climate change in the way that we need to. However, when it comes to the investment cycles, the traditional investment cycles at utilities, the adoption of renewable energy has been quite fast. And every single utility, whether it be a municipal utility, some sort of co-op or an investor-owned utility, is coming up with a strategy 
around massive adoption of renewable energy because it's cheaper for their customers. They're under pressure to phase out their fossil fuel plants, many of which are both under regulatory pressure and financial pressure. And they're just looking out and planning the grid and saying, wow, if we want to do this from a cost perspective, renewable energy is the thing. So that's all really exciting. But I think the business environment is somewhat removed from the political conversation around renewable energy. And unfortunately, because we live in a fairly politically tribalistic time when everyone kind of digs in to the storylines that they tell themselves and we're looking to politicize everything, renewable energy and climate action still gets wrapped up in that. But when you look at how the business community is thinking about this transition and renewable specifically, they're all in. So that brings me to another away from the utilities when I think you've reported extensively on data centers and they're a new customer in terms of measuring what kind of impact they're having utilizing renewable energy. Is is that something you've come across? And was there anything that surprised you about the amount of energy data centers use or something along those lines? Yeah, this is a really interesting space. So what surprised me about data centers was the predictions we saw in the 90s and early 2000s around what data centers and um, other hardware tied to the internet would mean in terms of energy use. And a lot of people thought, oh my gosh, it's going to make up 10, 20% of energy use in America. And right now it only makes up 2%. And we saw this extraordinary efficiency in computing, in design of data centers. And it's actually a miracle that we can access everything so easily with fairly low energy use relative to what we predicted. So I think that's just a really fascinating story in and of itself. Inside data centers, we see pretty radical reinventions of the way water is being used to cool servers. There's data centers are being sited in locations where you can use seawater or in cooler locations where you can use air cooling. There are innovations in in actual computing and computational load. So how do you match computational load to the amount of clean energy that is on the grid? And that is the next evolution in computing that is being pushed by companies like Google and Microsoft. Google calls it carbon-aware computing. It's part of this bigger initiative that they're putting out there called 24-7 carbon-free energy. And they're saying it's not enough for us to average out 100% renewable energy over the course of the year. We need to start getting 100% renewable energy for our operations every minute, every hour. And that they're really innovating and computing in order to do that. At the same time, they're buying tons of renewable energy to make up for these data centers. So it's such a cool world. So that brings me to uh, technology. Technology certainly is moving f- towards a renewable and a carbon-free environment for the energy industry, but it's not there yet. What are the, some of the new technologies you're seeing that you think will have a, a big impact as we move forward? Is it batteries? Is it microgrids? Is it carbon-negative technology? All those things. What are you seeing out there? There's a lot of cutting-edge stuff in development right now. I think it's important to mention before we get into what needs to come to get to the last 20% of emissions across the economy, that largely we have the technologies that we need to decarbonize a lot of areas of the economy. And, And a lot of it is just regulatory issues, some business model issues. There, there are a variety of 
problems that slow adoption of technologies today that can decarbonize the grid or industry or buildings faster. So that's important to keep in mind. I will say, however, though, we need to be looking at carbon removal. We need to be digitizing buildings, creating digital twins of buildings and to be able to model them out and use advanced analytics to you know, better, better use energy inside those buildings. And a lot is happening there. A lot is happening in in, in in carbon removal, where direct air capture in particular, where you have companies that are willing to pay a premium for the amount of CO2 removed from the atmosphere through carbon removed, car- direct air capture. And these companies like Climeworks, for example, are able to scale their operations because there is a financial incentive for them to do so. There's also a lot of interesting stuff happening on the next generation nuclear side and small modular reactors. There's a lot of money being poured into fusion to see if we can actually get fusion to work. And I think across the board, when it comes to really capital intensive technologies and difficult technologies like direct air capture or nuclear, or more elegant solutions like digitizing buildings, there are a lot of companies at work pushing this stuff. So I'm pretty bullish on what the technology environment looks like. That's great. What are some of the misconceptions uh, versus realities that you hear out there when you're talking to constituents and other listeners and uh, readers of your uh, commentary? Are you finding that there are still some misconceptions out there that should be addressed? I think the general misconception is that we don't have the technologies to decarbonize our energy systems fast. We largely do. We just have to put in better rate design, better market structures, allow businesses to evolve their business models. Um, that th- th- there's this idea that somehow we need this technological mirror miracle to solve climate change, and we really don't. I think that's a really common misperception that is evolving, but is still out there. And I I, I think it can be. A dangerous is a dangerous is I, I I hesitate to use the word dangerous, but it's the word that comes to mind. It can be somewhat dangerous in policy circles. It can cause delay. It can cause people to say, "Oh, I don't. We, we actually have to wait for the next generation of technologies before we do something." And there's so much that we can do right now to get you know, stuff that's happening today in the market, making people money, saving customers money, and reducing emissions. So I think that's the biggest misconception that I see. But can we do that in this price point that we're at now? Or do costs need to come down substantially and quickly? It depends on the technology that you're looking at. Certainly when it comes to renewable energy, the cost is already there. It's the least cost resource almost everywhere in the world. The question is, how do you make it a valuable resource? So can you pair it with battery storage or pumped hydro or something else that makes it, that it it extends the generation and allows it to compete with natural gas or coal? And I think that we don't really have to see significant price drops. We just have to see better business models that extend the generation of renewables. And so batteries are at a really cost competitive level now where you can do that at scale. So yes, we need to see continued cost improvements in battery storage, but I think largely in the the renewables and storage space, we're at a pretty good place. When it comes to 
direct air capture, for example, any kind of carbon removal, we are way off the charts. We need to see radical improvements in cost. The same thing with small modular nuclear reactors. We have to get through years of regulatory hurdles and commercial proof, and we need to see orders of magnitude drops in cost. And that only comes with getting these technologies out in the field. And yes, I think we need to see some pretty radical improvements with some of those further out technologies. It definitely depends on what you're looking at. Now, you touched on the political arena that we all know is a very divisive, at least here in the U.S. right now. Geopolitically, do you think some of the mandates that have been set by certain countries and in the U.S., in Germany and others are out of reach or are they too aggressive or do you think that they are spurring innovation? Are they having a good impact or are they just kind of putting pie in the sky numbers out there that are unattainable? I guess it depends on what you're looking at geographically. And each region has its own unique troubles. So Europe has obviously been out front in promoting renewable energy for a long time. And it is the reason why we've seen a solar industry at scale. Germany put massive subsidies behind solar from the 90s on through the mid 2000s. And China came in and said, we're going to manufacture a bunch of solar panels on the back of this. And they had a market to sell into. And it's the reason why we saw these radical cost reductions in manufacturing and allowed the US to basically piggyback off of the expenditures in in Germany and, and Italy and elsewhere. Now we're in this new evolution of spending in Europe. And I think that the Europeans are all in generally. And the big drawback is, let's say in a company in a country like Germany, where they want to phase out nuclear. So they're, they've, had a tr- they've had a problem with getting rid of coal on the system because they are phasing out their nuclear power plants. They are still reliant on imported natural gas from Russia. And renewables have only brought them some part of the way. And so there are a lot of criticisms about how Germany in particular has gone about its energy transition. No doubt they have tons of cheap wind and solar, but they're still reliant on a lot of fossil fuels two decades after they started ramping up their policies. I think there's a lot of argument about how they spent their money. No doubt they have helped the global industry China in particular is all in on electric vehicle production and solar manufacturing and has done the world a great service by investing heavily in those areas. And it's caused a a lot of competition in manufacturing and helped drive the cost down for battery vehicles and for solar and wind and offshore wind in particular. But China is, you know, also deploying a lot of renewable energy plants that are not getting connected to the grid fast enough. They are still burning a lot of coal. And so their renewable energy deployment has been quite effective, even with significant ramp ups, but they're they're burning, they're still planting lots and lots of coal plants. So I think there's a criticism over holistically what things look like in a place like China. You look at the around the world, each place Each region has its own unique challenges, and we do see significant support for clean energy, but sometimes it's balanced by questionable decisions around how to support those technologies. Um, And the last one I'll say is in Japan, for example, post-Fukushima, the big question was, is Japan going to divest from nuclear? What's going to happen on the grid? And, And as they shut down nuclear plants for a little while... 
they started importing a lot of liquefied natural gas. They started burning a lot more coal. And they Japan has started to step away from some of its international commitments around climate change because it's looking out long term and saying, we're probably going to be burning a lot more coal and gas for the foreseeable future. And even though it was one of the solar leaders from the 90s into the mid 2000s, they have still been reliant on on fossil fuels. So this is a very complicated and non-linear transition. And even countries that have invested heavily in next generation clean energy technologies are still reliant a lot on fossil fuels. And that brings me to natural gas. There are ways to uh, lower the carbon output of, of through natural gas with technology innovations. I know that some of turbines are now running on hydrogen. What do you foresee for the natural gas industry? It's such an important moment to ask that question because suddenly the global community has shifted its focus from just carbon emissions to methane emissions. And the reason for that is that over the past few years, there's been a significant amount of research looking at life cycle methane emissions from natural gas extraction. And I think that there, there are variations in the numbers, but generally what is that if you look at from extraction to burning natural gas, to consumption of the electricity, that like life cycle methane emissions could make gas potentially as as intensive as global warming intensive as coal. So there's all of a sudden this big policy focus on how do you clean up natural gas? And the industry has generally been behind many of those measures, particularly in the US, because it makes financial sense to capture methane at its source. So you haven't seen a radical upstream pushback on the need to regulate emissions in natural gas. What you do see, particularly here in the US, is that there's a lot of pushback around natural gas connections in buildings. And so you see a lot of localities in the US putting policies in place that would ban gas connections in commercial or residential buildings by a certain date going forward. New buildings, not existing buildings. And the gas industry is getting very nervous about that, of course, and starting to push back. And look, we're very dependent on natural gas. I think the numbers coming out of the pandemic show here in the US how dependent on gas we are to switch away from coal. So we saw over the last year for a variety of factors, both due to demand and weather, natural gas prices spiked significantly. And what we saw was coal use in the US after this long 15-year decline started to creep back up. And it showed that even though we have a ton of renewable energy, there are still a bunch of coal plants that are basically closing their doors because of cheap natural gas, not necessarily because of renewables. So when the gas prices went up, it made it inexpensive to run those coal plants or economic to run those coal plants. And so it shows that our power system is still very dependent on gas. And so these questions around what do we do with gas from a global warming perspective are, are very relevant for that reason. So it's just an interesting time because for so long, everyone was talking about gas as a bridge fuel and how important it is to, to switch away from coal. But now that we have such urgency and better data about methane emissions, there are all these other questions swirling around about how do we phase gas? And I don't think we're, we've answered that one yet. 
So now I'm going to ask a little bit more personal question. What motivates you and what engages you in covering this space and the new technologies and the new governmental impact or mandates? Is that what keeps you going or what keeps you excited about reporting on this industry? I've been reporting on this industry since 2006. And so I entered, I I became a business reporter and I entered this industry as it was hitting the as the modern renewable energy business was blossoming and it it was around 2005 2006 particularly here in America when you know solar and wind were getting attention from major utilities or larger developers people were finding their footing there were, it was very clear that costs would come down and it was really exciting time to be a part of the industry because no people weren't just talking about the need for more clean energy from an environmental perspective, all of a sudden you could see this trajectory where it would become economic and there was a really good business case for it. And that always compelled me. I I find that the economic and business case is always the most interesting for me because that's ultimately how people make decisions. And you can poll people and people might say, oh, the environment is my biggest priority. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, they're going to make the decision that's most economic for them, whether that be a person or a company, or an institution. So I've always been interested in the evolution of the economics, and that's what keeps me going, because I constantly see these improvements. I see how companies have gotten better at deploying this stuff. And I've seen there's always really interesting storylines and how people are surmounting obstacles and finding new ways to get clean energy to market or structuring their businesses in unique ways. And so there's a little bit of uh, human interest story and palace intrigue to the way people are strategizing around this. So those generally tend to be the stories that grab me and, and keep me going. But ultimately, what it, what keeps me optimistic when I'm focused on climate change so much is that I do believe that there are solutions that can get us a large way to stabilizing global temperatures. I really believe that. I think a lot of businesses believe that. We just have to get the market incentives aligned to get them to to market faster. Which brings me to a question we ask most of our guests, and that is, is there one idea or one perception or one thinking out there on the energy industry that you share that maybe others do not? Something that you find uh, a little bit different from what others are saying? That's a good question. And uh, contrarian is the wrong word, but I am a big believer that renewable energy, battery storage, conventional technologies can get us pretty far. But I also do not subscribe to any particular ideology around any technology that's workable. And so I think the unpopular, sometimes in environmental circles, it tends to be unpopular that you support keeping every technology on the table. And and I do. I just think that we absolutely have to keep almost everything on the table, no matter how uneconomic it is today or how harebrained it may seem, that that we have to keep our options open. And that can be a little contrarian at times because people tend to be ideological in the way they approach these issues. No matter what, we tend to bring our own political biases. And I have my own opinion on what things I think work. And I'm certainly not removed from those biases, but I truly 
get frustrated when I hear people limiting certain technologies or saying it has to be done a certain way. The enormity of the problem of climate change means that we have to keep everything on the table. So I think for a certain type of person, that can be controversial. But a, a lot of people are, are waking up to that reality, too. That's a wonderful way to end our conversation today, because I think you've touched on uh, various aspects of what you're covering and what people are interested in with regards to energy and renewables. So if people, listeners, want to go somewhere and find out more about you and what you're writing about and what you're reporting on, where should they go? They can go to postscriptmedia.com. And that is where we you, listeners can sign up to get our new releases for podcasts. If they want to hear my podcast that called The Carbon Copy, it is a narrative news program where we take one story related to climate change, either the energy industry, business, economics, finding ways to tie the carbon-based economy to our lives. And we tell that story. So similar to the New York Times, the Daily podcast, or the Washington Post reports, or the, the, the Wall Street Journal's The Journal. It's a format where we're talking to one reporter or newsmaker and really figuring out why this story is so important to the way the carbon-based economy works. So that's called The Carbon Copy, and you can go to canarymedia.com and check it out. Folks could also just Google my name, Stephen Lacey, and I'm, I pop up there, and I've been doing this for so long that you could easily find my work. But that's the new show I'm working on. And we're really just trying to tell this story in a way that's super relevant to people's lives and gives them that connection to these issues, not just from an industry standpoint, but how do you tell the story of climate change across business, economics, culture, sports, and, and start to broaden the lens? So Stephen, from one podcaster to another, and as host of your podcast and this podcast, I think we have uh, similar intentions to educate people and uh, stimulate the conversation. So I think there's a lot of good information here. From one podcaster to another, thank you. But are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? I really appreciate you having me, Amy, and enjoyed the conversation a lot. I would just send listeners with a sense of optimism. It is so easy to look at the problems in our world and feel despondent or frustrated or whatever it may be. And I just try to focus on the positive trends that are moving things forward. And if I look at how different things are in the energy sector today versus where they are a decade ago, they're pretty extraordinary in the way people are thinking, talking about new investments. And I think we can all go forward with that sense of optimism. As you cover this and as I cover this, there's just so much to look forward to in terms of positive change. Thank you, Stephen. This has been very interesting and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at Siemens-Energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials.